0: All right, Acts chapter number 4, and let's begin reading at verse number 31. The Bible says, "...and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common." "...with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Neither was there among them uh, any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of the things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need." Let me pause there and just say this. Uh, if you read that and just skim off the top with the society and the government we've got today, that sounds a little bit like socialism, don't it? And you say, what's the difference between the New Testament church and socialism? It was who decided to do the given, amen? They gave of, them own, of their own selves. They chose to do it. And by the way, that's the only kind of given that God's concerned with. Any giving that you do to impress anybody else, please anybody else, keep in the good graces of anybody else, that don't mean a thing to God. God doesn't need you to accomplish His financial works that He needs to do in people's lives, but He sure wants to use us, amen? And He'll do something in our life if we're willing to be yielded to Him. He don't want that because He needs our money. He wants us, and a lot of us, that's how He has to get to us, amen? Look at verse 36. And Joseph, who uh, by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time you've given us pray that You bless Your Word, Lord. I pray that You would give speed and clarity to my words and my thoughts. And Father, I pray that You'd give me the unction and power of the Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray that those that are amongst us here today would have the unction of the Holy Ghost in their hearing, Lord. And in my own heart, that I'd hear as You preach, Lord, not just to them, but to me. And Father, I pray that You'd do the work that only You can accomplish. Help us to praise You this morning, Lord. Help us to worship You this morning. Help us to glorify You this morning. Help us to do business with You this morning, Lord. Help us to be right with you this morning. And Father, will be sure to give you the glory, honor, and praise. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we find ourselves in Acts chapter number 4, we are in the infancy... Of the New Testament church. Now you say, Preacher, what does that mean? Well, there might be a little bit of debate as to exactly when the church started. Some people say it started in the upper room in John chapter number 20. Some people believe it started in Acts chapter number 2 on the day of Pentecost. But regardless of what you believe about that, I don't think there's any question uh, that when we come to chapter 4, we're in the early days of the church. God has been doing some remarkable things in the church at Jerusalem. But what we find described here to us in Acts chapter number 4 interests me this morning for this reason, because it looks a lot like a revival. Now, what is revival? We could try to give a definition. I guess we will try to this morning. Uh, Old Vance Havner, you say that uh, revival is falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. You know, I believe there's some truth to that. I I believe the reason our lives get wrong is because our love gets wrong. I believe the reason our attitudes get wrong is because our appetites get wrong. I I believe that the reason that our uh, walk gets wrong is because our will gets wrong. I kind of believe that if we fall in love with Christ all over again, if He become the most important, person in our life, if we'd seek after His will, after His approval, after His grace, I kind of believe that that'd bring revival, don't you? Uh, you know, revival is one of those things, we could go back through the history of this country and we could find a lot of revivals that have taken place. But one thing about it, a true Holy Ghost-born revival always makes a difference to those that are around. Uh, now, it always starts in the individual, but it makes a difference to those around. We could look at the great revivals that have taken place, and we could see where uh, where brothels and uh, saloons and uh, various uh, houses of ill repute were shut down, uh, not because they got an ordinance passed, amen? not because they got a better congressman or uh, not because they got a better president in, but because uh, the grace of God did something in people's lives. I believe that's what revival looks like. And as we read this passage, we see something taking place within this church and without this church that I believe we could define as revival. Uh, The context of it in chapter number uh, 3 and 4 is that Peter and John have gone to uh, the gate of the temple, the gate that's called Beautiful. Uh, They found a man laying there, and he uh, retched out. He was a blind man. He retched out and he begged. He said, "Uh, do you have anything to give? Do you give homes? Do you have anything? And they said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have that give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I say he's a blind man, he's a lame man, amen? Uh, but uh, uh, we see God doing great things through this. But then persecution came. And, you know, usually a productive church is a persecuted church. You know that? Uh, usually a productive Christian is a persecuted Christian. I mean, the kind of people that sail through life with no problem. Sometimes it's easy, you know, it gets discouraged. Any of you ever been discouraged before? I know that I... It's You can raise your hand. It's all right. You ever been discouraged? Sure, I have. And I know it's easy sometimes. Look around at people. It seems like they've got everything together. And you look around at people. It seems like their life is just smooth sailing. Can I tell you that one of two things is going on? Either they're putting on a pretty good show, amen, or the reason their life is going so smooth is they're going with the current. They're going with the world. The world ain't upset at them. They're going with the world. The devil ain't upset at them. They're going with the devil. But you start living for Jesus Christ. You start being a productive Christian. And I promise you, you'll hit bumps in the roads. I promise you, uh, you will have obstacles. I promise you, there will be persecution. And so the Bible says that the officials here at Jerusalem had taken Peter and John, and they had put them in prison. There's uh, a lot of things taking place, a lot of persecution. There's a shake-up going on in the New Testament church. Uh, But in Acts chapter number 4, in these ensemble of verses that we've read, we find that though the world had tried to shake the church, God shows up and shakes them in a different way. God shows up and does something miraculous in their hearts and lives. Now, this is the thought that interests me this morning. Even in the infancy of the New Testament church, there was a need for revival. Even in the infancy of the New Testament church, there was a need for revival for revival. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter number 2. Uh, and if you've studied the seven churches in Revelation, you know that they uh, represent to us the different church ages that had taken place. Uh, I believe we're in the Laodicean period right now. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you can be Philadelphian if you want, but you'll have to be blind to be it. Amen. You look around at the world, and you'll see a Laodicean society, and a Laodicean church, and a Laodicean Christianity all around us today. Uh, but the first church that's named, and this would have been what we would have called the apostolic church. In other words, now not a denomination, amen. Uh, not not a denomination of people that believe that there's no Trinity, amen. We okay. I mean, it's all right that I that I rep- reprove, rebuke, and exhort and expose heresy, right? I mean, that's okay. We're not talking about a group of people that believe there's no Trinity and believe that the three parts of the Godhead or the three persons that God manifests Him in are all just allegories for Jesus Christ, meaning that they don't believe that uh, there's a God the Father, that there's a God the Holy Ghost. I mean, that's not what we're talking about when we say apostolic church here. What we're talking about here is we're talking about the church that the apostles were a part of. And the Bible says that the church at Ephesus, the first church mentioned, uh, it represents to us this early church. And listen to what God says about this church. Now, this convicts me. I don't know if it will you, but it convicts me to consider this thought. Uh, God gave this condemnation when He said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Let me tell you something, friend. This, this issue of backsliddenness, this ain't a 21st century issue. I mean, this, this thing of, of being apathetic or, or being lazy in our Christianity, this, this isn't a 21st century ideal. I mean, you go back to the birth of the New Testament church and you'll find just a short time after that God had to give a refreshing and a reviving to His people. I want to name three things very quickly by way of introduction that I see about revival. And, and I believe these are important because they're going to shape and define our expectations for revival. Let me say first off that revival is normal. And you say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I I thought you just said that God was doing some spectacular things uh, in the church at Jerusalem. I thought you said God was doing some amazing things. Yeah, we've got an amazing God. We've got a spectacular God. I mean, the conditions that you see revival and people getting saved and people getting right and marriages being mended and people putting sin out of their life and growing together in unity and in love in the local church, that's normal. That's normal. I mean, this doesn't have to be one of these things where we look at it and say, well, you know, we could never have that. We ain't got enough people to have that. It don't take very many people to have that. It just takes right people, amen? I say that about myself too, church. I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm pointing it at us, all of us, because I think we all have a need to grow closer. It's normal. Revival is a normal thing. The things that you see in a church that has revival, that's how God intends for things to operate. Let me say number two, that revival is necessary. You say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. What do you mean necessary? I mean, I've seen churches survive uh, that weren't having revival. Yeah, doing just that, surviving if we're going to accomplish the work that God has called us to do, God's people are going to have to be in love with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's not optional. I I mean, if we're going to... You know why a lot of people are unhappy today? You know why a lot of Christians are dissatisfied? They're dissatisfied for two reasons. Number one, because they have gotten so much carnality in their life that they can't be satisfied with Jesus Christ. But sin never satisfies. They're, They're caught in the middle. They're caught in the middle of this thing. They have a custom, like the children of Israel in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Though they were a delivered people, they had acclimated their appetite to the garlic and onions and cucumbers and leeks and melons of Egypt. And now here they are in the middle. They're not satisfied with the manna. Amen? But they weren't satisfied with the other stuff in Egypt either. The only way you're going to be satisfied is to get your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You say, how do I do that? You've got to change your appetite. You say, how do I do that? You've got to change your affection. Set your affection on things above. You've got to fall in love with Jesus Christ. You've got to fall in love with the Word of God, with the Son of God, with the uh, Spirit of God, with the house of God. You've got to fall in love with it again. You say, how do I do that, preacher? You do it the same way you do it in your marriage. Right? Right? I, I mean, I, I think I can be honest enough to say, now, I, I love my wife, and I, and I always feel in love with her or know that I'm in love with her, but but, but I, I could be honest, can I, this morning, and and could say, I mean, there's times when we uh, bicker or gripe or, or squall or this, that, or the other. I mean, we're not a fairy tale. There's times, hey, we're human. We have what, some of that. I mean, it's not fighting. It's, it's, it's more like intense fellowship, amen? That's what that is. It's, it's not like I mean, we're not throwing blows or anything, but we have those moments... You say, how do you break out of that? You break out of that by remembering what they mean to you, remembering what they've done for you, remembering how good they are, remembering uh, what it was like. That's how you remember, you remember, you remember. You remember what it was like when the house of God was all the entertainment you needed? And it wasn't even entertainment. It was just some loud mouth, leather lung preacher getting up and going on 45 minutes. Amen? We ain't changed. (laughs) We ain't changed. But at one time it was enough. Why? Why? Because of where your love was. You loved Jesus Christ. You weren't wooed with the things of the world. They had no appeal to you. But you've allowed those things to consume your appetite. It's necessary. We're going to have to have revival if we're going to accomplish the work. Let me give you a third thing. I think it's needful. You say, now, what's the difference, preacher, between necessary and needful? Necessary means everybody needs it. Needful means I need it. That's the difference. It's easy to say... That's necessary. It's a whole other thing to say, I need that. And there's a lot of people in the world that they say, oh, yeah, that's what the church needs. But then when it comes to their personal walk with the Lord, they're satisfied to just walk at a distance from Jesus Christ, to follow Him like Peter did from afar, I believe that it's normal. I believe it's necessary. I believe it's needful. And that's what we see in the New Testament church here. I want us to notice a few components. I'm going to try to be quick best as I can. You shouldn't have given me a head start there, Brother Larry, because now, now it's, I just feel like I've got to make up for it. Amen? It's like in government quotas. Uh, if you don't spend it, they don't give it to you. Amen? I want us to notice a few things. Notice, number one, the essentials for revival that are spoken of. Look at verse 31. There's a few things that had to be there before they could have revival. And that's how revival is. Revival is not a mysterious wind that blows through every few centuries. Revival is the response of God to the obedience of His people. Notice what they did. Look at verse 31. The Bible says, and when they had prayed, it takes the prayers of God's people. A a, a church that don't pray is never going to have revival. I mean, that's the flat truth. A church that won't pray. Now, you say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. We pray before we start service. We pray before the offering. That's not the prayer I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a public prayer, and I believe a public prayer should be a genuine prayer. I don't believe in none of this uh, form praying or pray preaching or any of that. I believe it ought to be a sincere prayer. But I'm saying this, when it says when they had prayed, it's not saying when they had gathered together and called on one person or two people. It's talking about when the early church, like they so oft would, would gather in a place and bind together and grab hold of the horns of God's altar until they heard from heaven. We've gotten, uh, man, I'm telling you, we have let form and function just about break us today. Uh, there was a time, and don't get scared, we ain't going to do this this morning. There's a time when, when the church would meet, and I don't mean a time 2,000 years ago, I'm talking a time 150, 200 years ago, when the church would meet, they didn't have a schedule. I mean, they didn't have, oh, we're going to do this, to this, and this, to this, and this, to this. Now, you say, are you against having uh, some kind of a former? And I, no, I'm not, I'm not totally against that. I mean, I believe we ought to be a place of order. But you know what they would do? They would gather together and they would pray. They would pray till God gives somebody something to get up and to preach and to exhort and to say or to sing. And they'd just get together and they'd pray, man. They didn't have no clocks. They didn't have no watches they was watching. They just got together and they just waited for God to move. Nowadays, we'd be worried about the shonies filling up. I mean, it's going to take prayer. It ain't going to happen without prayer. It's impossible for it to happen without prayer. God does nothing. Listen carefully to what I say. God does nothing except in response to the prayers of His people or to the promise of His Word. Those two things. God does nothing except in response to the promise of His Word or to the prayers of His people. You say, why is that? Because those two things are the only way that He's going to get glory. That's why. When He's promised something in His Word and He does it in response, you can look at the Word of God and say, Oh boy, God's true! Let every man be a liar. And whenever God's people gather together and pray and ask God to do something, and He answers, it ought to be that God's people lift a hand towards heaven and say, Listen to what God did for me. And He gets the glory out of it. We see that the prayers of God's people are necessary. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. It's going to take the prayers of God's people, but I'd say it's going to take the praise of God's people. There's people getting the ditch on both sides on this issue of praise. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some people that think that they can praise with their lips and not with their life, and God's going to be satisfied with it. And God ain't within a hundred miles of that kind of praise. Amen. I mean, God's not interested in just lip service. That's not what God's interested in. But then you see people in the other side of the ditch, and they think it's—I mean—they think praise has no value in the church. You say, how do, how do you know that there's people that think that? Have you ever been to some of their churches? I mean, if somebody would say Amen, the whole place wouldn't know it. They'd think they yelled fire. They'd bolt out the door. They want not know what's going on. And I'm not saying, you say, preacher, are you saying I ought to get loud every time? I think there ought to get be a chance you will. I think you ought to be willing to. I don't mean you're going to do the same thing every time. I don't want it to be mechanical. I don't want it to be manufactured. But when it's manifested, I think it's a good thing. And I think God's people are going to have to be a praising people. You find that all through the Word of God. God's people praise Him. You say, what's the difference between praise and worship? Worship is an inward action. It may express itself outwardly, but do you know how it expresses itself outwardly? This is going to be good. You ready? Through praise. Through praise. That's how worship. And you say, can't I worship God inwardly and not express it outwardly? Well, I reckon you can. I reckon you can. Next time that we go and start passing out donuts, you you just express that thought inwardly and don't express it outwardly. See where it gets you. Amen? We won't do that now, but when it comes to praise, we won't say, well, I just worship God in my own little quiet way. If God gives you liberty to do that, then you go ahead and take liberty to do that. But I'll say this, I think this idea that, that, that I'm not one of those people, I think that is straight out of hell. We're all one of those people. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you've been redeemed, you've got something to praise Him for. That doesn't mean you should uh, drum it up. It doesn't mean you should uh, manufacture it. But it means that you ought to be willing to praise God. It's scriptural. It's scriptural. I know that these highfalutin, round-mouthed churches don't want us uh, to preach this, but it's scriptural. All through the Old Testament, you find it to be a book of praise over and over and over and over again. What did Paul say? with well, that all men ever would lift up holy hands. He's talking about praying and he's talking about praising and all through the Word of God, it's, it comes down to this truth. Jesus Christ has become the most important person here. He's got to become the most important. You know what that means? That means when our feelings get hurt. You say, Preacher, do yours get hurt? Sure, they do, just like yours do. That means when my feelings get hurt, yours get hurt. You know what you've got to say? You've got to say, this thing ain't about me. ain't about me. Because it's not. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. That's who it's about. That's what praise is, is is putting Jesus Christ in his proper place in the New Testament church. It's giving him the preeminence, not just the prominence, the preeminence in our worship. I want to notice a third thing. The Bible says when they all had gathered together. We'll read it. Look at verse, I believe it's 31. Look at verse 31. The Bible says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. It's going to take the uh, prayers of God's people. It's going to take the praise of God's people. It's going to take the presence of God's people. It's going to take the presence. you got to be there to get something. you got to be there. Now, I understand. I mean, I, friend, I'm not preaching to you. You're here. Amen? But I think we all need this because we have a tendency. You'll hear people say sometimes, you know, I I, I heard it whenever I I came here. I don't know, maybe some of you all said it. If you did, that's all right. Well, I I don't know about it, so don't tell me. But, uh, you know, you'd hear people and they they would say, I'm talking about people that that wouldn't darken the doorstep of this church. They'd say, well, that church has changed. It's changed. Things changed. Things changed. Yeah, people quit their feuding and fighting and bickering and arguing. That's what happened. But, you see, they weren't here, so they didn't know that. And they'd feud and fight and gripe and complain. And they'd say, well, that place has changed. But they weren't here to be a part of it. They didn't know what was going on here. There was other people that had left. And, uh, you know, you say, do people still leave? Sure, people still leave. That's part of a church. My old pastor used to always say uh, that a, a church is like the human body. If it doesn't eliminate, it'll die. Right? That's normal, right? I mean, it happens, Right? And you'd have people that, you know, they left and they, they had left discontent and they were upset and everything. and They'd say, well, you know, I, I'm just not going to go back. And they'd stay in their soured up state. You know what be, and I And I'm not trying to uplift Walridge as the only good church that's, that's around here. There's a lot of good churches. A lot of people found good churches. Praise the Lord for that. I want people to be where God's will is. Uh, but I don't believe it's God's will for anybody to be out of church. I believe that's God's will for anybody. And some of these people that were out of church, they'd gripe and moan and complain. And they'd say, well, things are just changed. Well, you wouldn't know you weren't here. You've got to be there to get something. You've got to be there to get something. you ain't going to get blessed if you ain't here. You've got to be here. And you say, well, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm just not as happy as I used to be. Well, probably because you ain't here. <laughs> Amen. They say distance makes the heart grow fonder. Whoever said that was an idiot, amen? Amen. You spend time around people that you love, that's going to help you, right? And, I, and, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's, in any church, there's going to be griping, bickering. I, I've given the example before. You know I mean? If we, if we had, you know, somebody over here, if, if, if Richard was sitting over here and, and uh, you know, he, he swallows a bug and a fly, you know, because that, I don't know, <laughs> it just makes sense, right? And somebody looks over at the exact time, and he looks over at him, just real cross-eyed and everything. You know, stuff happens. And then next thing you know, somebody's saying, did you see the way Richard Evans looked at me? You know, It happens. Yeah, he looks like that all the time, though, don't he? <laughs> And stuff happens. People are going to cry. People are going to get their feelings hurt. It's going to happen. You get people together to do anything, it's going to happen. But you know what? People get their feelings hurt, and they get out, and they get upset. And next thing you know, they're miserable. they got a bad attitude and a bad opinion of every church, particularly the church that they came from and that denomination. you got to be here to get a blessing. And it's like anything, like in a family. You ain't going to fix your problems by splitting ways and and griping and moaning and talking about each other. You're going to fix it by getting together and talking. That's how it's going to be fixed, man. And we see that they were together. They came. They participated. They were there. If you're not here, you won't get nothing. If you're here and your heart is right, you will get something. You say, preacher, what if you preach a bad message? I do it all the time. You know, Lord's still able to give you something that you need because this ain't about me. It's about Him. We see that there are some essentials, but I want you to notice the second thing. We see the essentials of revival, but I want you to notice the expectations of revival. What's going to happen if we see revival? If revival happens, what what accompanies revival? I want you to notice a few things. Look at verse 31. The Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, the fullness of the Spirit. Don't try to dispensationalize that into being something supernatural that doesn't take place today. Because Paul commanded that we were to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not some kind of, of apostolic uh, church age doctrine that, that has tongues and this. Thing. In fact, you'll find that in the Word of God, uh, nine times out of ten when people were filled with the Holy Ghost, they didn't speak with tongues. Isn't that true? Read the book of Acts. Nine times out of ten when they were filled with the Holy Ghost, they didn't speak with tongues. And the tongues they did speak with was not the gibber jabber that the charismatic movement tries to proclaim that it was. But, but you, you find the fullness of the Holy Ghost over and over again. What does that mean? Well, I've used this analogy before. If you've got a glass and it's full of one thing, there ain't no room for anything else. If you get full of the Holy Ghost, you'll find that your will and your ambitions and your aspirations and your opinion will go right out the window and you'll just want what God wants for your life. You'll find that God will take control of what's going on in your uh, situation in your life when you're full of the Holy Ghost. And you'll find it over and over and over again. We live in a day where I believe it is rare to see people that are full of the Holy Ghost. I believe we live in a day where it's rare to see preachers that are full of the Holy Ghost. I mean, it's just a foreign notion, a foreign idea. We're all so full of our own wishes and desires that there's no room for for the Spirit of God to take over. Notice not only that we see the fullness of the Spirit, but I want you to notice uh, also that we see freedom of speech. Look with me at verse 31 again. The Bible says, and they spake the word of God with boldness. When God takes over your heart, He takes over your tongue. Amen? When God takes over your life, He takes over your lips. And when God got a hold of them, they began to speak the word of God with boldness, with boldness. They began to preach and proclaim and tell people. And listen to me, I don't believe that the children of God ought to be a quiet people. I believe we ought to proclaim what God's done. That don't mean you need to be some stark raving lunatic. I mean, if you're already one, go ahead and keep on. You, you know, there ain't no sense in changing now. But, but I, I'm not advising that people uh, go out and scream and holler at people on the street corners. You say, oh, I got a problem with you saying that. Well, that's all right. How many people do you know have been saved that way? Amen? I'm not saying that I am uh, saying that's the best way to do things. But I'm saying this, uh, that when God's people get right with God, they start to tell people about God. Man, when you fall in love with him, what, you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with that, that woman or that man that you love? Uh, woman, if you're a man, man, if you're a woman. Well, I not have to say that, but do <laughs> you remember what that was like, man? You'd tell everybody you're so proud. You couldn't figure out why they didn't care. It's because they thought they was ugly, amen? You, you couldn't see that. You was in love. <laughs> and, they, you know, they, oh, I wouldn't write home about her or about him, amen? But, but you know, to you, it didn't matter. To you, man, it was the most important thing. You you loved that person. You wanted everybody to know about that person. You wanted to proclaim. Why do you think we wear these wedding rings? We want people to know that we belong to somebody and that they belong to us. We see that there was freedom of speech. But I want you to notice there was fellowship of the saints. They got along. They got along. <laughs> Boy, if we've ever needed this uh, in Baptist churches, it's today. Look at it. Look again at verse 32. And the multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul. What a beautiful passage! Of one heart and of one soul. I tell you, the reason we can't be of one heart and of one soul because we think it ought to be our heart and our soul. That's why. And I, you know, I joke sometimes from the pulpit. I'll, I'll, you know, make silly statements like, you know, well, if you want to be wrong, it's your choice, and da da da, you know, goofing off. But but really, at the end of the day, we all kind of have that attitude. We all kind of have the attitude, you know, that that I'm right and I can't be wrong and everybody just needs to get right and be with me. That's kind of the attitude we all have. And I know we all always think we're right. uh, and, And that's normal to always believe you're right. But you ought to know that you could be wrong. I I mean, it's normal to believe you're always right, but you ought to believe that you could be wrong, that you're not infallible. I kind of remember what old Benjamin Franklin said about the Constitution when he first uh, uh, read the Constitution. He said this about, he said, I accept this document for all of its faults. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I see problems in this document. But old Ben Franklin, he could be wrong. I understand we're all going to think we're always right all the time because that's normal. I mean, if you think you're wrong and if you're still doing that, you're you're dumb, amen? That's not You ought not do that. But you ought to recognize that you could be wrong. I'm not talking about areas of the Word of God or whether it's scriptural authority, but I'm talking about our own opinions and desires and things that we think it ought to be done this way, it ought to be done that way. Hey, friend, you might be wrong. The reason they were of one heart and one soul, listen carefully, they quit worrying about everybody being of their heart and their soul. They just wanted everybody to be of his heart and his soul. That's why they were of one heart and one soul. You know when unity happens, when people get more concerned about Jesus Christ than they are about themselves? That's when you. It ain't going to happen till then. Because unity is not a natural response of the carnal man. You know what the carnal man says? It's all about me. That's what the carnal man says. The natural man, he says it's about me. I'm the most important. I'm always right. It's my way or it's a highway. The natural man is never, never submitted to the wisdom and to the mind and to the Spirit of God. The Bible says he's at enmity with it. He cannot comprehend, he cannot submit to it. You know what happens when we mortify that man? when we put him to death and when we say, Lord, all I want is what you want. You know, it's a beautiful thing in a church when people just come together in the mind and heart and will of God and they say, you know, it don't matter what I think. If it's the will of God, that's what we ought to do. It don't matter what I think. If it's the will of God, that's where we ought to go. It don't matter what they've said about me. As long as we're uplifting Jesus Christ, that's what matters. We see they had fellowship one with another. I want you to notice the final thing, then I'm going to hush. I want you to notice the extent, the extent of revival. Just two things. Verse 31, the Bible says that they spake the word of God with boldness. They had a greater witness. They began to tell people. Their evangelism expanded and exploded. Uh, let me tell you something. There's two ways that you gauge a person's spirituality. And, and I know you might say, well, it's not your place to gauge. And I guess that's probably true. It's not my place to gauge. They're not going to answer to me. But, but we all have opinions, don't we? And I believe two scriptural ways you can kind of tell where someone's spiritual temperature is at in two things, in their giving and in their witnessing. People that won't give to the Lord won't give to the Lord because they think it belongs to them. And people that won't witness for the Lord won't witness to the Lord because they don't see everything that he did for them. That's, that's kind of how, I mean, usually if someone, and you can have, you can, you can talk the talk, you can know all the facts, I mean, you can act the right way, you can have everything in the world, uh, but if you're not trying in some way to be a witness to people, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean you're going to get out on the street corner and preach, that doesn't mean you're going to go into full-time ministry, but I'm talking taking every opportunity that you can have to give a track, to give an encouraging word, to point someone to Calvary, when God gets a hold of people. He gets a hold of their life, and he gets a hold of their lips, and they start telling people about Jesus Christ. We see a greater uh, witness, uh, but we see greater works. Started to do things. Hey, I'm on, I'm on a, how many of you are, are grammar Nazis? I hope that's not an insensitive term, but if you, you know what I mean, most of you. This is going to drive you up the wall. Ain't nobody been revived that ain't doing nothing. That's simple. They can talk it. They can shout it. They can run. They can do backflips. I, I mean, they can, they can tear the walls down. But if they ain't doing anything for Jesus Christ, if, if they're not serving Him, it's all sounding brass, tinkling cymbals. It means nothing. Love is an action verb. If you love Him, you're going to do something for Him. You're going to do something for Him. I mean, that doesn't mean you're going to do what the next guy does. You may do more, you may do less. But whatever God's will for your life is, you really fall in love with Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to want. That's what you're going to want. We see that God did some things in their church life. Things I believe he could do in our church life. Things I believe he could do in my life as a pastor and as a Christian. And things I believe he's capable of doing in your life as a Christian as well. And as a church member. So the question is this, do we want it? Revival does not come to the unwilling. You don't want it. It's not going to happen. God is not going to force you against your free will. But if you want revival, it begins with you, just as it begins with me. It begins with us. Looking at You remember what I said? It's needful. We have to look at it. We have to say, Lord, I've got things in my life that I need you to take care of. Lord, there's some things in my life that you need to deal with and that I need to submit to you. By the way, do you know there's a lot of people that are praying for God to take something away that they won't let go of? You know, the Bible says that we're to cleanse ourselves. what well, it says, 1 Corinthians, we're to cleanse ourselves. And, and there's something to praying and asking God to take something away from you. And I believe in that. I'm not saying that God can't do that. And God's able and there's times when God needs to. I think there's a lot of stuff that we kind of, with a vain lip service prayer, we say, Lord, take this away. And then we hold on to it with a death grip. And God says, I'll take it away if you'll let go of it. I'll take it from you. And you know why he does that? Because he knows you're fully capable of it. He wouldn't ask you. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say that. He wouldn't respond to you in that way uh, if, if you weren't capable. But because we're capable, there's a lot of things in our lives that we can let go. We've just got to make up our mind to do it. Maybe bitterness, maybe fear, maybe anger, maybe an, uh, an outward sin that could be seen in our life. But whatever it is, we could get rid of it, but we won't get rid of it. And we're praying and asking God to do it. And God's saying, I've commanded you to do it. And if you'll only give it up, I'll help you. I'll help you. There may be things in your life you got to quit looking at other people, start looking at yourself, saying, Lord, what? where is it in me? Search me, O Lord, try me. See if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. That's what David prayed. David, it interests me, and I, and I promise you I'm done. It interests me that David prays that in Psalms 51. He's repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. So we see that when he went to repent, he did not repent just of the sin with Bathsheba. He wouldn't have to pray and ask God to search him over that. He knew what he did wrong. Nathan had told him what he did wrong. But when he was repenting and getting right with God, he didn't just repent over the things that he knew about. He said, Lord, I want you to examine my life. Take inventory. Show me where I need to be closer to you. That's what we need this morning. It's what all of us need this morning. And if God's spoken to your heart, I want to give you the opportunity to do